Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Andrew Feldman, founder and CEO of Cerebra Systems, a highly watched startup in the suddenly blossoming area of specialized hardware for machine learning. Since the release of AlexNet in 2012, we have seen an explosion in machine learning, particularly in deep learning, and a lot of the work has happened primarily on general purpose hardware, CPUs or GPUs. But now that we're six years into the resurgence in interest in machine learning and AI, these new workloads have attracted entrepreneurs who are building specialized hardware for both training and inference in both the data center and on edge devices. In fact, there are companies who have enough volume who have already begun building specialized processors for machine learning, for example, Google with TPUs. But a new wave of startups particularly Cerebras I'm excited about, will make specialized hardware affordable and broadly available. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, Andrew Feldman, founder and CEO of Cerebras Systems. Welcome to the Data Show. Thank you for having me. So Cerebras is building kind of the next generation hardware for uh, machine learning, specifically deep learning, training, and inference. So I guess my first question is, uh, why are there suddenly so many hardware startups? Good question. I think that there, there are a couple reasons. I think the first is that AI is compute hungry like nothing we've ever seen. And uh, the guys at OpenAI put out some very interesting analysis recently that showed that since 2012, the compute used for the largest AI training runs has increased by 300,000 X. That means compute demand has doubled every 3.5 months. Now, if you remember, during the 90s, Moore's Law had an 18-month doubling period. So at its peak, Moore's Law suggested that compute performance would double every 18 months. Between 2012 and now, if Moore's Law had been operating at its peak, you would have gotten a 12X increase in compute. So we have a situation where the demand for compute is growing at 300,000x over a five or six year run. Moore's law, if it were in existence, would have given you a 12x. It's not, uh, it's giving much, much less than an 18 month doubling period. So what you have is this demand for compute growing 25, 30, 40,000 times faster than you're getting from raw silicon and CMOS technology. So what do we do? What's, what's available to us to, uh, to attack this vast discrepancy between compute demand and, and, and what we have? And two things are available to us. Uh, the first is new and interesting computer architectures. And that's think this ushers in a, a golden age for computer architecture. And number two, it's building dedicated hardware. It's saying we're prepared to make trade-offs to accelerate AI compute 
by not trying to be good at other things, by not trying to be good at graphics, by not trying to be a good web server, but to attack this vast demand for compute by building dedicated hardware for artificial intelligence work. And historically, that has been a very, very productive trade-off, very valuable trade-off. So new and interesting architectures dedicated for a particular type of work, that's the opportunity that, that many of these hardware companies or chip companies have seen. It's kind of like, uh, as, as I might map it in my head, it's a two-by-two two matrix, right? So you've got training and inference, and then you've got the edge and the data center or server. And, I think that's, and that's in, right. In each of these areas, there's opportunities for new specialized hardware. I think that's right. I think... It's really important to, to think carefully about whether uh, whether your your use case, whether your workload is is in the edge or in the data center. Historically, the the edge was uh, a phone, and you can look at the, the difference between the CPU and your phone, and, and what's in a in a data center. Your phone CPU is is ARM based. Your data center is x86. Your edge for all edge compute has traditionally been about low power, about living on a battery. So you could think about phones, GoPros, robots, vacuum cleaners, et cetera. They all are constrained by the power they can draw. Cars uh, are similarly constrained. They have a little more power, but it's very different than what's available in a data center. And so uh, the edge is predominantly about, about inference. It's about low power inference. Why can't you do training on the edge? You can't do training on the edge because training generally requires a large amount of data. And the edge historically doesn't have a lot of place to store. Um, and the, the processing power on the edge, because it's pulling power from battery, is insufficient for, for training. And so what you have is this edge use case, vision, uh, coming off sensors, where we have a, a yawning demand for dedicated hardware to accelerate inference. Now, the, the data center has some different challenges. The, the data center has huge amounts of power, cooling, storage, network bandwidth. And as a result, it, it does the, the heavy lifting in the compute world. And that's going to be training in artificial intelligence and something we call uh, data center inference. And that is inference not on one image you take with your phone or you take a photo of a plant, and you want to identify the plant, that's, that's inference at sort of the one at a time scale. But in the data center, you're going to do inference over very large images, millions and millions of, of images that are pouring into the center, maybe from satellites, maybe from digital assistants. Yeah, efficient utilization becomes important, right? That, that's exactly right. That, that what you have training because you have enough infrastructure, enough storage, enough compute horsepower. And you have inference for big, hard inference problems. So that sort of completes the two by two. Our audience is uh, comprised of mostly uh, people in the data space, data scientists, data engineers, and business people. So they don't probably think about hardware or encounter hardware startups. So uh, very briefly, this is something you've, uh, in our previous conversations, you've explained to me. But uh, a hardware startup is very different than uh software startup in you know because uh 
first of all, the time period from funding to actually shipping the product is a little longer. And then also, as you explained to me, it turns out that uh, you actually need to build a few chips before you know what you're doing. Yeah, I think in the the chip and and system business, there are not a lot of uh, first-time CEOs who have ever been successful. I think we have large capital requirements. We have extremely uh, large NREs uh, that, that have to be paid in manufacturing. And this is a, a particularly complex uh, project that of making chips and even more complex if you, you wish to have a bigger impact by building the whole system. And so we, we tend to be a little older. Uh, we tend to uh, have built multiple chips uh, over the past 15, 20, 25, or 30 years. Um, and that's very different than, than the people coming out of uh, who are leading companies and starting companies and innovating in, in other areas, in upper layer software, in social networking. There are a whole collection of apps where uh, experience uh, matters much less. And in fact, being a millennial and targeting millennials is a huge advantage. That, that's less the case in, in what we do. Uh, our projects are so large, so complicated that having done it before, not twice or three times, but five, six, seven times in multi-year projects really pay some dividends. So uh, w- we tend to have uh, have a bit more gray hair. And, and, and as you explained it to me, actually, uh, a lot of the hardware architecture talent uh, is still generally in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's true. That uh, the hardest projects on Earth in our space, uh, without question, are, are, are building CPUs. Um, those are the most complicated computer architecture problems. And with AMD and, and, and Intel right here, you have a fair bit of, of the world's uh, computer architecture talent. You had Sun right around the corner here. Uh, you, you now have some of that talent at, at our facility. You have some at, who've migrated to Google. Um, you have a, a remarkable concentration of people who designed big, important chips in this area. And so I think there's a real advantage to the amount of, of experience that one can find in the Bay Area. So machine learning, particularly deep learning, has exploded since AlexNet in 2011, 2012. But uh, a lot of the compute has been done on GPUs. Um, so I guess a question someone might ask you is, why not? just keep improving the GPUs like uh, we kept packing more and more uh, power into CPUs back in the day? Well, I, I think the, the question really and that, that the industry has to ask is, is the, the GPU the right architecture for this problem or was it less bad than the CPU for this problem? And, you know, we believe that uh, the, the graphics processing units was designed for graphics processing. As a result, 25 years of tuning and optimizing have made it an extraordinary machine for graphics workloads. And it occurred to us and many others uh, who began with a clean sheet of paper, they, they, they asked, you know, why would an engine built for displaying images on a monitor? Why would an engine built for, for doing graphics be ideal for deep learning? It turns out that it isn't. And 
there are 50 or so projects that I'm aware of that are doing chips optimized for for artificial intelligence working, including that at Google and ours and some of the other leading players. And not one of them has chosen an architecture like a GPU. It's because that architecture was designed for a different problem. And and at that problem, it's best in the business. There is nothing better than a GPU for graphics processing. So, so even though you can use it, uh, and people have used it for parallel computing, they have sure. frameworks like CUDA, it's still sure. not... Uh, it, was, it wasn't designed for right. uh, for ma- matrix sparse matrix computations and things. That, like that. That's exactly right. I mean, it's in computer architecture, like in cars, we we, we build for for something in particular. You can you build a, a minivan to take kids to soccer practice and to go grocery shopping. And, um, it's true that you can fill it with bricks and with two by fours, but it's not an ideal machine for moving bricks and two by fours. If you want to do that, you should buy a Ford truck. It's sort of the same that this machine was built for doing the, the, the dense linear algebra, dense matrix operations that is important in in graphics processing. Uh, so focused was this part on graphics that it chose to name itself after this workload. But the work in in, in deep learning is is different and. When you use it, it's no different than than using a minivan to to move bricks two by fours. It's can be done. It's just not the right tool for the job in in our view. So we are in this highly empirical era for machine learning, and a lot of that uh, translates to data scientists wanting to run experiment experiments, trying new architectures, refining their training data. And, and things like that. So the appetite for training is unlimited. Unlimited. And and, and uh, that means also that once they built the model, the there's a lot of need for inference. Mm-hmm. So it, it, so it seems like uh, there will be there will be a lot of people wanting to try anything that will get that will allow them to iterate faster, including new including new hardware. Uh, th- th- that's. That's been our experience as we've talked to the, the largest customers in the world that things that can reduce training time from, from weeks to minutes. Yeah, Im- imagine that. Uh, imagine that, Andrew. You know, it's something that uh, now you can go to lunch and it's done as opposed to going on vacation before it's done. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's, you know, um, um, imagine training meaningful networks and the time it takes to, to get a cappuccino. That's when, when we get to that point. All right, our industry will move forward in leaps and bounds. I uh, there's some sort of fun quotes that that the largest of customers have put forward. Some of the guys at, at Facebook wrote in a presentation a little while ago that the top seven problems with deep learning were long training times, long training times, long training times, etc. That <laughs> um, the guys at Baidu, a guy named Greg Diamos, who's really oh, I know a Greg, top yeah. leader in yeah, the yeah. industry. Yeah. In one of their papers wrote, training large models on very large data sets takes months or years of critical path compute time. That makes training these models impractical. And, and Jeff Dean at Google has, has written that if it takes longer than, than a month to train, don't even bother. And that, that's a pity. We, we have a vast amount of, uh, of ideas for 
what sort of models, what sort of algorithm we could generate that could learn. And many of them aren't being tested right now because they take too long. And that's a, a problem and that, that really limits our, our industry from moving forward in leaps and bounds. So uh, going back to hardware, so I mentioned the proliferation of startups, but there's one other factor here, which is the companies who have enough volume. So the Google, Apple, Amazon, Alibaba, Tencent, and companies like that, some of them are starting to build their own chips, further validating probably your uh, thesis that uh, this is a specialized enough workload that it, it makes enough economic sense for them to build uh, specialized hardware for both training and inference. That, that, that's right. I, I think Google, is, as you guys probably know, has developed uh, a TPU, tensor processing unit. They're doing their own hardware, not just the chip, but the whole system. Others have, have announced similar intentions. All of them are building parts that are, are dedicated to uh, AI work. None of them also do graphics, and none of them use a, a graphics processor architecture. Um, I think it is one of those times when you can sit back and you can look at the demand for the compute and the number of different ideas that are being deployed, the number of hard problems that are being solved to build dedicated hardware, and it's enormously exciting. So, the, so the uh, on the algorithm and model side, things are happening out in the open, right? So there's open data sets, there's archive. So how how do how does the hardware community function? Because you guys are all so secretive, and do you guys share ideas? <laughs> <laughs> do we share ideas? We we don't we don't go out for beer. And- yeah, 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 yeah. So how- sometimes go out for beer because many of us have worked together over the past. 20 or 30 years, but we generally don't share what we're working on. I think um, here's some of the, the basics. It's that in understanding what the right machine to build is, what's the right hardware, you, you ask yourself, what does the, the compiled software ask of the underlying hardware? Right? What are the, the fundamentals of the workload? Is it communication heavy? Is the uh, mathematics complicated? Is the math heavyweight? Uh, does it need, or can the core be very simple, just do floating point, multiply, and accumulate? Where are the constraints in the problem? And you design an architecture uh, that is in support of or, or, or optimized for the specific characteristics of your given work. And I think uh, when you look out at the different choices that, that have been made so far, without going into too much detail, all of them are, are trying to solve this problem of how do you do sparse linear algebra? How do you wring out uh, as much parallelism as you can? In other words, how can you gain advantage by doing in parallel what others must do sequentially? and uh, there's a division in what we do called model parallelism, and that's the ability to wring out vastly more parallelism than can be run out in a, in a GPU, which is limited to, to data parallelism. And so you, you think about, from the ground up, how you build a machine that solves the hardest and, and sort of most expensive part of, of the work. 
And and there's another element that you actually alluded to, which is uh, the communication layer, right? So across across chips, from processor to memory, I/O, things like that. This is hugely important because the, the reason they're called neural networks is because they're they're communicating structures, right? That what what happens in one layer is communicated to another layer, and that communication is fundamental to all networks and neural networks in particular. And, um, you know, that's very different than in scale-out compute uh, or in uh, traditional graphics work. And the opportunity to, to invent new techniques that take advantage of or that are optimized for accelerating the communication uh, part of this, this problem is very, very interesting. Yeah, a few years ago, actually, uh, I, I ran into a hardware uh, vendor, not to be named, but uh, <laughs> but uh, basically, this was before this uh, chip startups like yours started to come out, and uh, they were selling hardware for deep learning. I said, "So, what's in your hardware?" I said, "It's mostly GPUs, right?" And the the person said, "Yes." So, what about the interconnects? I asked. Well, funny enough, you should ask because that's where all our IP is. <laughs> Well, that's right. And, and the, it's very interesting because when you stay on a chip, one can communicate fairly quickly. The problem is our work in artificial intelligence often spans more than one traditional chip. And the performance penalty for leaving a chip is very, very high. On chip, stay in silicon. Off chip, you have to wrap your communication in some sort of protocol. You need to send it, connect it over over lanes on a on a printed circuit board, or maybe through a PCI switch, or maybe through an Ethernet switch, or an InfiniBand switch. This adds two, three, four orders of magnitude of latency. And so, several some of the problems that that the hardware vendors who are interested in in solving data center training, data center inference, are working on are um, how you can accelerate communication between cores. And across tens of thousands of cores, or even hundreds of thousands of cores across many chips. And some are inventing new techniques for special switches and modifying PCIe to do that. Others have sort of more fundamental approaches to accelerating this communication. But if you can't communicate quickly, you can't train a model quickly, and you can't provide inference quickly. So the other actual trend that is uh, important to point out here is the the rise of uh, uh, frameworks, right? So uh, for deep learning. So then that means that uh, if you like PyTorch, like I do, or TensorFlow or some other uh, framework, you can probably expect to be able to run your favorite framework even in these uh, uh, new new chips that are coming out from startups. I think that's one of the, the grand benefits of these frameworks is, you know, I, if you look at, at, at Google's TensorFlow, it's designed to run on uh, a CPU or a TPU or a GPU. And when you're designed to run across hardware platforms, there are fundamental uh, operations, sort of primitives that are presented to the underlying hardware. And so 
all of us in the in the hardware and the dedicated hardware world and the optimized hardware world for artificial intelligence can can link in can hook into to those entry points and that's true for PyTorch and that's true for TensorFlow and MXNet and the, what the Microsoft guys have at CNTK or um, all of those provide a path for that that framework, the the articulation of your neural network in a framework to to provide to the underlying hardware the model, so we can work on it. So I get the uh, Andrew, I get the uh, the uh, kind of the innovation that needs to happen to do large scale training, right? So to accelerate large scale training, but uh, how much uh, innovation is needed to do the inference? For, I mean, hardware for inference. Yeah. Sure. I, I think first it's, it's important to, to remember that training involves three steps. Inference is the first step in training. And in, instead of ending with classification, you, you, you end with a loss, with a difference between what it should have been and what it was. So if you can do blazing fast... It, Training, it, it, it means you can do blazing fast inference. Now, you make different trade-offs uh, based on uh, where you're going to fit in the edge or the data center, how much power. Oh, so it's, it's, more, it's more of a, at that point, it's really economics that drives. That's exactly right. I mean, when, when you fit in the edge, when you fit in a phone or you fit uh, even in a car, the maker of that system gives you a power budget and tells you how much heat can be dissipated, and you have to fit into that budget. They tell you that you have to be in deep sleep. When you're working, you can consume this much power, and when you're not, you have to be in a deep sleep, and you have to consume this much power. And that's so you you design your your part around those requirements. When you're in the data center, you design your your requirements around performance. Um, how fast can you train your model? How much I.O. can you, how, how many images can you bring in to get trained on? You optimize over a different set of constraints. And so I, I think when you look at the, the difference, it's, is it harder or easier to make a, a an ARM CPU for a cell phone than, than a, an x86 CPU for the data center? But the truth is, is it's very different. Intel, who, who is probably the best CPU maker in the world, even with all their expertise, has never been able to crack the cell phone market. Why? Because it's different. It has different, uh, requires different attention to different constraints. So I would be remiss if I didn't bring up a four-letter word that st- or four-letter acronym that stands that starts with F. Uh huh. FPGA. Uh huh. <laughs> so I know the answer to this, but I think. Uh, we should probably uh, cover uh, sure. why, 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 is, for example, is Microsoft using FPGAs for inference, and why do most hardware architecture experts uh, think that isn't a good idea? Well, I, I think Microsoft uh, has used FPGAs for Bing and is part of their search infrastructure, and in part because they are looking to constantly modify the search algorithm so that the SEO vendors can't game the system. So FPGAs to our listeners have this nice property where they're programmable, so you can you can change them on the fly. Although 
most people who will tell you that's a real pain in the butt. To do. That's right. It's not exactly the fly. It, it takes <laughs> probably hours to synthesize your your code. And, 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 and the software tools to do that are a pain. It's it's a complex, but it's a whole lot better than having to tape out a part. Right. Um, we use them in prototyping, but uh, I think what what Microsoft saw was they had available to them a very large cadre of servers that already had FPGAs in them in a very large data center. And particularly as some of these servers were, were rolled out of Bing's environment, that they could be used and repurposed for inference. And that was a great idea. I, I think that's, uh, that, that's efficient utilization so, of fully depreciated assets. So that was smart. So, so problem solved then. Inference problem solved. In, pro, pro, inference in the data center, let's just use FPGAs. Well, I, I don't think you, you'd want to buy new ones for that. But if, you're, <laughs> if your partners at Bing had already paid for them and you got them rolling into your infrastructure for free, um, I think it might be a very wise approach, I think. So what, what's, the, what's the downside to, to using FPGAs if you don't have it for inference? An, an FPGA is a very, very flexible substrate. Compute. And as a result, it carries a great deal of baggage for things that you're not going to do in, in training I, or, or an inference. And as a result, it uses more power than an ASIC. It will run slower than an ASIC and it will cost more than an ASIC. And so historically, people have used FPGAs to prototype and for the early stages in markets when they're not sure that uh, what the market's going to look like. Historically, after you were sure, after the market stabilized a little bit and you knew exactly uh, what the workloads were characterized by, you moved from the FPGA to an ASIC. And you, got, uh, you paid a tenth as much, you used a tenth the power, and you got 30x speed up. And so I think... Uh, the, the FPGAs being used for inference in the data center is idiosyncratic, in particular to Microsoft, because they're using them somewhere else and, and had a great deal of them available to them. I don't think you're going to see, in my opinion, and I've certainly been, been wrong before, I don't think you're going to see many large uh, data center players who choose them with a, a clean sheet of paper to buy new machines with. I think it, it, repurposing some machines that have them, sure. And that's just you know cost-conscious, thoughtful behavior. But I, I don't think anybody with greenfield sites is going to go down that path. So let's close by talking a little bit about the future. So in particular, so I know I'm not supposed to ask you anything about uh, Cerebras, but just generally in the broader, <laughs> in, in the broader industry, what kinds of gains should uh, people expect to see, let's say, in the next 15 months let, on the training side? Well, I, I think that there are two important dimensions of gain. First is using existing models with different data vastly faster. So these are how do we accelerate our, our understanding and our testing of hypotheses around existing models. And that's those models 
ought to shrink, not just in the obscure papers where giant clusters are built that take a year to provision and that you write a paper about, but available to to, to the broader community. Uh, you should see not the, not just to the big tech that's companies. Right. Yeah. That's right. You should see a reduction in training time of ten to fifty x. So this is what's the time frame here? Eighteen months? Yeah, I, I think uh, maybe even twelve twelve months. And 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 is that is that it? Or after twelve months? So is is there like kind of a uh, uh, steady steady? I think you're going to see a an additional ten to twenty five uh, x in the following year. So we're looking at three orders of magnitude. A reduction in training time over the next several years. Wow, that's uh, that's fantastic. So, will will this mean, uh, Andrew, kind of com- different computer architecture? So people talk a lot about the von Neumann architecture, which is yeah. uh, what we've all grown up to use. But uh, uh, what kinds of new ideas are are people uh, kicking around? So I I think. You're going to see not just new computer architecture, Ben, but you're going to see new different types of models that today can't be tested at all because CPUs right. and GPUs take too long. And so the innovation isn't just going to be in, in my field, in, in the, the underlying compute infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, suddenly the search space, the search space and the space of algorithms gets larger. That's exactly right. And that's really exciting. How do you get past the, the models that the, that the founding fathers of our field, the Hinton, the Bengios, the Kuhns of the world, how do you get past the models they've proposed and that they proposed in the late 80s or 90s? How do you get past them into whole new categories of learning algorithms? And that's what's really exciting. That's when we, we usher in a, a, a new epic uh, in, in, in deep learning. Not just when we make a residual network train blazing fast, but when there are whole types of networks that that haven't existed before, algorithms that that we haven't been able to explore, when we show how extraordinary they are at learning a particular type of of problem. And that's very, very exciting. And, And that's how an industry sort of changes paradigms, not by making the existing faster, but by, by doing things that it couldn't do at all before. And I think that's one of the, the most exciting parts of, of the field right now. So you hinted at this earlier, which is the notion of specialized chips for training, but also I think you kind of hinted at the notion of specialized chips for inference. In other words, uh, for sure, uh, for, uh, maybe a chip that only does one thing and, that's and right. one thing in computer vision. I, I think you will see dedicated chips in, in inference that have that use one or two or five or ten watts that are placed right next to a sensor. I think you're going to see parts that are uh, 20, 30, 40 watts that are placed uh, in a car or uh, in some other edge application. Each of those is going to be tuned for the, the particular challenges and constraints that are that are presented by by that particular location in the data center, you're going to see. Uh, I don't think uh, it's enough to build a, a much faster chip. Just like it's it's not enough to 
to, to, to put a, a, a race car engine in a Volkswagen, you don't suddenly have a race car. You have to rethink the entire car if you want a race car. Yeah, it's a and whole, the, it's a system. That's right. That, that's exactly right. That you have to think, uh, to continue the car analogy about uh, how you're going to feed fuel into this giant engine. You have to think about how you're going to cool this engine in aerodynamics, and you have to think about stability and, and how you're going to turn it at, at 100, 200 miles an hour. It's the exact same in, in what we do in the data center, is that if you're going to make uh, compute vastly faster, it's not enough just to, to stick it in in some aftermarket fashion into uh, into an existing uh, server. You need to rethink the entire uh, hardware soup to nuts. You need to build a system, as you said. So uh, uh, to close, uh, w- one of the things that uh, uh, I'm following, because I happen to organize AI conferences all over the world, is just the rise of AI all over the world. And one of the areas where that's particularly true is China. And so people probably, uh, our audience probably has heard about Chinese plan uh, policy paper around AI, but there's actually another plan from China, which is called Made in China 2025, which is about modernizing their economy and manufacturing in particular. Now, inside Made in China 2025, there's really, really specific targets, Andrew, around import substitution for uh, around high tech. So the Chinese are really investing heavily in uh, chip technology as well. So they are. They've committed hundreds of billions of dollars in a 20 year plan to rid themselves of their dependence on uh, non Chinese chip expertise for processors, for graphics, for artificial intelligence. They are building fabs, uh, the, the fabrication plants that, that, that manufacture semiconductors. They are committing resources to uh, education, uh, to uh, AI programs, computer science programs. They are really uh, focused on and investing in this domain. And, and, and uh, tying this to what we discussed earlier, uh, hardware in particular, it's uh, as you described, the, the, the people who are uh, the productive hardware architects uh, they might have built already six, seven chips, and each chip might have taken three years. So it's going to take a while. I think uh, you know what 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 the, the Chinese landscape has today is extraordinary talent and money and commitment. And what what they will have over the next twenty years is an ecosystem that includes extensive experience, and that's something that takes decades to build. So how did, how, Andrew, how did the South Koreans, what was the story there around memory chips? What was the timeline? Well, it, it took Samsung 25 or 30 years to consolidate its dominance in memory chips. It, it was in a, a very, very long run. And part of the way they did it was not just to, to invest in architecture, but they own the most advanced fabricating plants. Samsung, because it's quasi-public organization uh, with a large percentage ownership by a single family, because it's a, a champion country for the government of Korea, the nation of Korea, they were able to, to put forward a 15 or 20-year plan in which they invested enormous resources in manufacturing capabilities. And 
those are much harder for uh, U.S. companies to to do in our sort of quarter focused uh, economy. Right, right, right. And so, you know, ARM's approach was a little different. They knew they couldn't compete with with Intel because of Intel's manufacturing prowess, and that led them down a different path altogether, where uh, they became an IP provider. Right. And it, it, in so doing, sort of bypassed the 500-pound gorilla of Intel at what it's best at, at, at its manufacturing expertise, which it's sort of best in the world. And they said, we can't be big like that. We can be everywhere and small. And that was their approach. And so extremely interesting dynamics as these markets evolved. So this has been a great conversation, uh, particularly learning about this renaissance in computer architecture and hardware. It's really fun. Driven by machine learning and deep learning. And if you want to badger Andrew Feldman in person about the details of his company, <laughs> come to his talk at our AI conference in San Francisco this September. I would enjoy chatting with any of your listeners, Ben, and I really appreciate you having me on the call. You can follow Andrew Feldman on Twitter at Cerebrus Systems. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.